Ezekiel. Ezekiel chapter 6, verses 1 through 14. The word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, set your face toward the mountains of Israel and prophesy against them. And say, you mountains of Israel, hear the word of the Lord God. Thus says the Lord God to the mountains and the hills and to the ravines and the valleys. Behold, I, even I, will bring a sword upon you and I will destroy your high places. Your altars shall become desolate and your incense altars shall be broken. And I will cast down your slain before your idols. And I will lay the dead bodies of the people of Israel before their idols. And I will scatter your bones around your altars wherever you dwell. The cities shall be waste and the high places ruined. So that your altars will be waste and ruined, your idols broken down and destroyed, your incense altars cut down, and your works wiped out. And the slain shall fall in your midst, and you shall know that I am the Lord. Yet I will leave some of you alive when you have among the nations some who escape the sword. And when you are scattered through the countries, then those of you who will escape will remember me among the nations where they are carried captive, how I have been broken over their whoring heart that has departed from me and over their eyes that go whoring after other idols. And, that will, will be loath, and they will be loathsome in their own sight for the evils that they have committed for all their abominations. And they shall know that I am the Lord. I have not said in vain that I will do this evil to them. Thus says the Lord God, clap your hands and stamp your foot and say, Alas, because of all the evil abominations of the house of Israel, for they shall fall by the sword, by famine and by pestilence. He who is far off shall die of pestilence, and he who is near shall fall by the sword, and he who is left and preserved shall die of famine. Thus I will spend my fury upon them, and you shall know that I am the Lord." When their slain lie among their idols, around their altars, on every high hill, on all the mountaintops, under every green tree, and under every leafy oak, wherever they offered pleasing aroma to all their idols, and I will stretch out my hand against them, and make the land desolate and waste in all their dwelling places, from the wilderness to Ribla, then they will know that I am the Lord. If you go back to verse 1, you'll see that God tells Ezekiel to prophesy against the mountains. Isn't that an interesting thing? He says, say to the mountains. Any idea why he's telling Ezekiel to preach against the mountains? That was a question, by the way. That's where the altars were. I'm going to give you a real brief recap of something that is a very, very deep study. If you just want to have an interesting study, just take the time to look at all the places in the Bible that God talked about the high places and the fact that he didn't want them worshiping at the high places. See, the high places were places that the nations around them had developed where they would go up to the mountains and they would level off a spot and they would worship the sun, the moon, they would worship all these false gods and well, go with me, it'd be easier for me to show it to you. Go to Numbers chapter 33. I'm just going to give you just a few verses to get you started if you would like to do this. But if you just even use your concordance and use your uh, Strong's concordance and look up high places, it'll blow you away by how many times the word high places is all through the scriptures. In Numbers 33, though, look at verses 50 through 52. It says, And the Lord spoke to Moses in the plains of Moab by the Jordan at Jericho, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When you pass over the Jordan into the land of Canaan, then you shall drive out all the inhabitants of the land from before you, and destroy all their figured stones, and destroy all their metal images, and demolish all their high places. So here, when God's got the nation of Israel just outside the promised land, about to bring them in, he tells them, When you go in to the land, you're to not only destroy the people, you're to destroy all their idols, all their things that they did, and their, the stuff that, well, the reason why I destroyed them because of their sin, I want you to destroy them all. And he said, destroy their high places. And as you're going to see, one of the main reasons why God is judging Israel and judging Judah and the northern kingdom is because... They didn't do this, and they began to worship at the high places, the false gods, just like all the nations around them had. And as you're going to see a little bit later in our study, you'll be shocked to find out who was involved in this whole process. Go to Isaiah chapter 65. Let me give you another example of the fact that God was upset. He told them to destroy the high places when they go into the land. And in Isaiah 65, look at verses 6 and 7. 
says, Behold, it is written before me, I will not keep silent, but I will repay. I will indeed repay into their lap both your iniquities and your father's iniquities together, says the Lord, because they made offerings on the mountains and insulted me on the hills. I will measure into their lap payment for their former deeds. Go over to Jeremiah. Just turn over to Jeremiah real quick. Look at chapter 3. Look at verse 6. Jeremiah chapter 3, verse 6. The Lord said to me in the days of King Josiah... You're going to see that name come up a little bit later. The Lord said to me in the days of King Josiah, have you seen what she did, that faithless one Israel, how she went up on every high hill and under every green tree and there played the whore. So again, they would go up to these high places and worship these idols there. And God saw it as adultery. Go over to Hosea chapter 4. Hosea chapter 4 and look at verses 12 and 13. And by the way, some people have trouble with Hosea, and that's okay. Just find Daniel. Daniel's easier to find. And then Hosea is right after Daniel. Hosea chapter 4, verses 12 and 13. My people inquire of a piece of wood, and their walking staff gives them oracles. Isn't that interesting how God describes the nation of Israel? They're asking of a piece of wood. Now, before we get too judgmental, how many of you have ever made a decision because you flipped a coin? You're letting a piece of metal. You're asking the piece of metal for your wisdom. My people inquire of a piece of wood. The walking staff gives them oracles. For a spirit of whoredom has led them astray, and they have left their God to play the whore. They sacrifice on the tops of the mountains and burn offerings on the hills under oak, poplar, and terebinth, because their shade is good. Therefore, your daughters play the whore, and your brides commit adultery. By the way, where had God said that the only place that they were to worship was? At the temple in Jerusalem, where he was. And he was to be the only one they worshipped, and they were to worship him there and there alone. Yet they had been going and worshipping on all these places that the, God had told them, when you go into the land, destroy them. That's why we taught our kids when they were young, don't even get curious about the Ouija board. Don't even play with the stuff that they play with. Because the Bible says God knows his kids real well. You even just, I'm just curious, does this really work? You end up going down a road that you never intended to go down. Let me show you one more place. Go to Micah chapter 6. Micah chapter 6, verses 1 and 2. Hear what the Lord says. Arise, plead your case before the mountains, and let the hills hear your voice. Hear, you mountains, the indictment of the Lord, and you enduring foundations of the earth. For the Lord has an indictment against his people, and he will contend with Israel. Isn't that interesting, though? As he says he's got a problem with Israel, he tells them, Hear the hear mountains. And we see back in Ezekiel chapter 6, he, Ezekiel's told to prophesy against the mountains. So I'm going to ask you a question tonight. Was God angry with the mountains? No. But it's not a bad question to ask. Because actually, if you ask the question of, God, are you angry with the mountains? You're going to be asking the question that the prophet Habakkuk asked. I've told you this before, but let me remind you. If you just study the book of Habakkuk, it's three simple chapters. Habakkuk, the prophet, cries out and says, God, the righteous in Israel are suffering, the wicked in Israel prospering, and I'm not sure you're paying attention. God says, I am paying attention, and I'm going to do something. Not very long from now, I'm going to bring the Babylonians down from the north to take you guys captive out of your land. Habakkuk's response, paraphrased, is, how can you justify that? I just said the righteous are suffering and the wicked are prospering. And now your response is to take a more wicked nation, the Babylonians, and they're going to prosper more by taking us captive. And the righteous are going to suffer even more by being taken captive. And then God says, don't worry. I'm going to take care of the Babylonians too. One day they'll get theirs. And at the end of the chapter, Habakkuk just says, then, then I'll wait until the day that you get them. Because you're God and I'm not. But in his prayer in chapter 3, and I want you to turn to Habakkuk chapter 3. In his prayer, in Habakkuk's prayer in chapter 3, he actually asks 
this question that we just asked, but this time not about the mountains, but about the rivers. But while he's praying, the Spirit of God prophesies through him. And you're going to see in his prayer, he gets insight from God through the Spirit about the return of Jesus Christ. And some of you, if you were a part of our Revelation study and you know about all we looked at that's going to happen during the tribulation period and especially at the end, you're going to see that as he's praying, the Spirit of God prophesies through him about the return of Jesus Christ and his judgment and all the upheaval that's going to happen on the whole earth. Listen to Habakkuk chapter 3. A prayer of Habakkuk the prophet according to Shiganoth. O Lord, I have heard the report of you and your work, O Lord, do I fear. In the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. God came from Teman and the Holy One from Mount Paran. By the way, does anybody know where that is? You remember our study in Revelation? Remember where the nation of Israel was going to run out into the wilderness in the second half of the tribulation? Into where? Into Edom and Basra. And if you do a study, that's where this is. Remember, we looked at how Jesus is not going to return directly to the Mount of Olives, but he's going to return to Basra where the Jews are going to be hiding. He's going to atone for their sins and cover them with his blood. And then he's going to defeat his enemies all the way through the Battle of Armageddon back to Israel. And, but this is where he comes. He comes from Teman and the Holy One from Mount Paran. His splendor covered the heavens and the earth was full of his praise. His brightness was like the light. Rays was like the light. Rays flashed from his hand, and there he veiled his power. Before him went pestilence, and plague followed at his heels. He stood and measured the earth, and he looked, and he shook the nations. Then the eternal mountains were scattered. Remember the end of Revelation? The Bible says that all the mountains of the earth are going to be leveled. Everything's going to be flattened, the whole earth, except for the center of Jerusalem. The, the eternal mountains were scattered. The everlasting hills sank low. His ways... Sorry, his were his were the everlasting ways. I saw the tents of cushion and affliction. The curtains of the land of Midian did tremble. Look at the question he asked. Was your wrath against the rivers, O Lord? Was your anger against the rivers or your indignation against the sea? When you rode on your horses, on your chariot of salvation, you stripped the sheath from your bow, calling for many arrows. You split the earth with rivers. The mountains saw you and writhed. Raging waters swept on. The deep gave forth its voice. It lifted its hands on high. The sun and the moon stood still in their place. Does that not sound like Revelation, what we looked at? The sun and the moon stood still in their place at the light of your arrows as they sped. At the flash of your glittering spear, you marched through the earth in fury. You threshed the nations in anger. You went out for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. You crushed the head of the house of the wicked, laying him bare from thigh to neck. You pierced with his own arrows the heads of his warriors, who came like a whirlwind to scatter me, rejoicing as if to devour the poor in secret. You trampled the sea with your horses, the surging of mighty waters. I hear and my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters my bones. My legs tremble beneath me. Yet I will wait quietly for the day of trouble to come upon people who invade us. So Habakkuk even said, were you angry with the rivers? I mean, because the prophecy that he's speaking is how God's going to come back and just level the earth. Remember how the, the rivers turned to blood during that time period and the sea turns to blood and all these things are happening. Is God angry with the mountains? Is he angry with the rivers? The answer is no, he's angry with his people. Then why is God having this affect the earth when humans have sinned. I'm sorry? Definitely that's a big part of it, but it goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 3. Very good. Go back to Genesis chapter 3. We're going to start in verse 16. Genesis chapter 3, starting in verse 16. To the woman, God said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And to Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field by the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, and for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. You wouldn't have had this episode if it wasn't for the curse and the fact that you wouldn't have needed a weed whacker, would you? She was telling me about how she had some heart issues because of the weed whacker. 
If it wasn't for the curse, your body wouldn't have had the issue and you wouldn't even have been using the weed whacker. But the Bible says that because of man's sin, God cursed the earth. Actually, the earth is suffering the consequences of what we've done. And so he's not mad at the mountains or the rivers, but they're suffering because of us. Now, let me just do something real quick here that's just a little chase a rabbit, but it's worth chasing. There are a lot of people today that love to say this, TGIF. You ever heard that, TGIF? That means, hey, God, it's Friday. In other words, I'm done working. Now I can do what I want to do on the weekend. But there's an even greater thing that I heard a preacher talking about yesterday, TJIR. TGIR is, thank God I'm retired. Because there are people that have this mindset of, when I can be done working, then I can enjoy life. Folks, we think that work became, came because of the fall of man. If you know your Bible, God made Adam and Eve and he put them in the garden and he wanted them to work it. Work was before the fall. Work is not bad. Work is, actually, I think personally, from my understanding of the scriptures, we're going to work in eternity. I think we're going to build and create and it's just going to be awesome. Work became hard because of sin. If work is sin, if work is just something we have to get through to then be able to live our life, God sins. Because Jesus said, my father is always at his work to this very day. And I, too, am working. Work is not a bad thing. We need to get rid of this mindset of you work and then you get to do what you want to do. And No, work is something God created us to do. The fact that it's a struggle has made us hate it at times. But don't get a wrong mindset of work. The Bible says in Acts chapter 13, verse 36, when Peter's preaching, and he's describing the fact that David wasn't the one the scripture was talking about when it said he's not going to let his holy one see decay, because they thought that all referred to David. And he said, when David had accomplished God's purpose for him in his generation, he died and his body decayed. But listen to how God, Peter, God through Peter described David. When David had accomplished God's purpose for him in his generation, that's when he died. We need to understand that God wants us always to be doing what he's created us to be and what he's called us to do. And we should see work as actually a joy. Now, there's nothing wrong with recreation and all that stuff. I'm learning as I mature in my walk with the Lord that it's not work and then you play, but learn how to play as you work. I'm learning how to enjoy and have my recreation, if you will, or my enjoyment along with my work. It all ties together. You, you can't say, well, a lot of people have always said, well, you, did you enjoy your vacation? Because I wasn't here teaching a Bible study. And I, was, did you, I wasn't on vacation. I was out working. But, yeah, I played while I was out there. Always carry my clubs with me. Got to have them wherever I go. And I've learned to work and play at the same time. And think about this. Jesus said he's always at his work, right? Yet what was he accused of? being a glutton and a drunkard. He was always working, yet people said, you always seem to be at parties. He had learned to do what God had called him to do in the power of the Father, and it's fun because his yoke is easy and his burden is light. Stop thinking work is one thing and then free time is another. They should go together if you're doing what God's called you to do. All right, that's the rabbit. We'll come back now to the study Go to Romans chapter 8. The earth is suffering right now under a curse because of man's sin. And we've all talked about this before, about how much each of us who have the Spirit of God are homesick and ready for heaven. The earth is waiting for it just as much. Look at Romans chapter 8, verse 19. Paul says, For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, and hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies." For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. 
And folks, we do understand, those of us who are here tonight that know the Lord Jesus Christ, you've been born again, you've been redeemed, your, your spirit and your soul has been redeemed, correct? But your body's not been redeemed yet. And boy, we can't wait for that day when Jesus takes his bride and takes us to be with him and we get our new bodies. Isn't that going to be an awesome day? And just as much as we're waiting for that day, just as much as we can't wait to get out of these bodies that are still under the curse, creation is waiting just as much. And God had his reasons and his purposes, but the earth was cursed because of man's sin. And so when God says prophesy against the mountains and speak to the mountains, he's judging man's sin, but the earth is still having to suffer the consequences of it. Now go back to chapter 6. Um, I'm not going to cover verses 8 through 10 because I've already kind of covered them when we talked last time we were together about three weeks ago about those pieces of hair of Ezekiel's hair that he was to take and put them in the hem of his garment. And we looked at the remnant and then that there is prophecy about how of those who are going to be spared of this judgment, who are going to go to these other nations, there's going to come a time when the Jews are going to repent they're going to realize what they've done, and they're going to call out to him, and they're going to, that's when he's going to save them at the end of the tribulation period. And that's what that's referring to down the road. But there's something interesting here, like I told you before we started our recording. There's, I thought I was just going to skim over chapter 6 and 7 and get to 8, which we're going to have a lot of time in chapter 8. There's an amazing amount of stuff in chapter 8. But as I took the time to just really look at it and pray through it, something jumped out of here in chapter 6 that totally took me in a different direction than I had planned. And then I see now through what all has gone on, the election and everything, how much God wants me to take the rest of tonight dealing with something that's here that most of you might not even see. And that's okay. That's my job. But in order for you to grasp what's here, I have to take you back and do a little history about the nation of Israel. As God, through Ezekiel, promises to destroy all the high places, we just read that in the first six verses, didn't we? He's going to destroy all the high places. As God, through Ezekiel, promises to destroy all the high places in his coming judgment through the Babylonians, some Bible students may remember that this is not the first time that the high places were destroyed in Israel. And as I thought about that, all of a sudden I was reminded, wait a minute, wasn't there a time when all the high places were destroyed? And if you don't know what I'm talking about, that's okay. Go with me back to 1 Kings chapter 12. Now, as you're turning back to 1 Kings chapter 12, I want to kind of remind you a little bit. The first king of Israel was who? Saul. All right. And then Saul was removed by God. And who did God put in his place? David. And after David's time came to an end, who did God choose? Solomon. And then when Solomon's time came to an end, what happened to the nation of Israel? They split. Jeroboam, his son, became king of the northern ten tribes of, we call Israel. Rehoboam became king of the southern tribe, two tribes we call Judah. There was a lot of fighting amongst them and between them in this whole process because these two brothers wanted to be king. And we're going to read a little bit about that in 1 Kings chapter 12. Look at verse 25. Then Jeroboam, this is Solomon's son, the one that's taken charge of the northern kingdom. Then Jeroboam built Shechem in the hill country of Ephraim, and he lived there. And he went out from there, and he built Penuel. And Jeroboam said in his heart, now the kingdom will turn back to the house of David. If this people go up to offer sacrifices in the temple of the Lord at Jerusalem, then the heart of this people will turn again to their Lord, to Rehoboam, which is his brother, the king of Judah, and they will kill me and return to Rehoboam, king of Judah. So he's worried that when the people go to Jerusalem to worship, which they're supposed to do every year, they're going to all of a sudden say, you know what, let's just stick with this Rehoboam guy. And so he decides... I'm going to make it so they don't have to go to Jerusalem to worship, which is a big no-no. So look at verse 28. So the king took counsel and he made two calves of gold. And he said to the people, you have gone up to Jerusalem long enough. Behold your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And we got to stop. You know your Bible stories, right? Have we seen this calf of gold before? Was it a good thing? Was God okay with it? I mean, and not only that, when they didn't know what happened to this Moses fellow, well, he's up on the mountain with God getting the Ten Commandments. They had Aaron make the calf of gold, and they said, this is what brought us out of Egypt. 
This was the same kind of idolatry that had been going on in Egypt, and they had been doing in Egypt during their slavery. They made a calf of gold. Well, when Moses comes down, God's pretty upset about it. They take that calf of gold, they grind it into, burn it, grind it into dust, and make everybody drink it. And Rehoboam makes two. Oh, it gets worse. They said, These are the, this is the God that's brought you up out of Egypt. And he set one in Bethel, and the other he put in Dan, in Dan. And then this thing became a sin, for the people went as far as Dan to be before one. He also made the temples on, uh-oh. He made temples where? On the high places. Didn't we already see that God said, go in there and destroy them? And he appointed priests from among all the people who were not of the Levites. And hopefully you remember that only the Levites could serve as priests. He made priests in these high places that weren't of the Levites. And Jeroboam appointed a feast on the 15th day of the eighth month like the feast that was in Judah. In other words, when they're having the Feast of Tabernacles, we're going to have our own feast up here so you don't have to go to Jerusalem. And he offered sacrifices on the altar. So he did in Bethel. By the way, the word Bethel means house of God. If you remember, that's where Jacob met God and the ladder and all that stuff. In Bethel... So he did in Bethel sacrificing to the calves that he made, and he placed in Bethel the priests of the high places that he had made. He went up to the altar that he had made in Bethel on the 15th day of the eighth month, and in the, that month he had a devised from his own heart, and he instituted a feast for the people of Israel and went up to the altar to make offerings. Not a good thing, huh? Keep reading. Look at chapter, chapter 13 now. And behold, a man of God came out of Judah by the word of the Lord to Bethel. Jeroboam was standing by the altar to make offerings. And the man cried against the altar by the word of the Lord and said, O altar, altar, thus says the Lord, behold, a son shall be born to the house of David, Josiah by name. And he shall sacrifice you on you the priests of the high places who make offerings on you, and human bones shall be burned on you. And he gave a sign the same day, saying, This is the sign that the Lord has spoken. Behold, the altar shall be torn down, and the ashes that are on it shall be poured out. And when the king heard the saying of the man of God, which he cried out against the altar at Bethel, Jeroboam stretched out his hand from the altar, saying, Seize him. And his hand, which he had stretched out against him, dried up so that he couldn't drop back to himself. The altar also was torn down, and the ashes poured out from the altar, according to the sign that the man of God had given by the word of the Lord. So Jeremiah, Jeroboam's now sacrificing at this altar, which, by the way, the king wasn't even supposed to be doing, at this altar that he had made in Bethel at the high places. He had appointed these priests to serve there at the high places. And a prophet comes and says... There's going to be a guy that comes from the lineage of David, and his name's going to be Josiah. And he's going to take the priests that have been sacrificing at this altar, and he's going to burn them on that altar, and their bones are going to be burned on that altar. And when he said that, Jeroboam stuck his arm out and said, grab that guy. And when he did, his hand shriveled up to the point that he couldn't bring it back. And then the prophet said, you want evidence that what I just said is going to actually happen? This altar is going to all of a sudden just fall to the ground and all the ashes are going to fall out. And they did. Now, 300 years go by between this prophecy by this prophet and the wickedness continues. Lots of kings became kings in the northern kingdom and southern kingdom and all that. And by the time we're about to read now in second, go to second Kings chapter 22. By the time we get to second Kings 22, there's not even a northern kingdom anymore. The Syrians have already come and taken them captive. And there's only the southern kingdom left. Manasseh's already been king, that wicked, nasty king. That Remember how when we were together last time, we saw how he had been offering sacrifices to these foreign gods in the temple itself? Remember that? Remember that part of our study? So over 300 years go by from between that prophecy about this guy, King Josiah, who's going to destroy those altars, all the high places, and burn priests bones on them. And in chapter 22, we'll start in verse, we'll start in verse 1. Josiah was eight years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 31 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Jedidah, the daughter of Adiah of Bozkath, 
And he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, and he walked in all the way of his, David his father, and he did not turn aside to the right or to the left. Josiah, as we see in our, head, in our heading of your Bibles, some of you will say Josiah is not going to repair the temple, because at this point it had been kind of destroyed and fallen to pieces. In the 18th year of King Josiah, that's important, in the 18th year of King Josiah, the king sent Shaphan, don't miss that guy's name either, remember Shaphan, the king sent Shaphan, the son of Azaliah, the son of Meshulam, the secretary to the house of the Lord, saying, Go up to Hilkiah the high priest, that he may count the money that has been brought into the house of the Lord, which the keepers of the threshold have collected from the people. And let it be given into the hand of the workmen who have oversight of the house of the Lord, and let them give it to the workmen who are at the house of the Lord repairing the house, that is, the carpenters, the builders, and the masons, and let them use it for buying timber and quarried stone to repair the house. But no accounting shall be asked for them from the money, for the money that is delivered into their hand, for they, will deal, for they deal honestly. All right, so the king, Josiah, sends this guy, Shaphan, his secretary, and says, go to Hilkiah the priest and tell him to take all the money that's been collected for the rebuilding of the house that's been given and just give it to the workers, the carpenters, the masons, and so on, the builders, and don't even check on what they do with it. They're going to deal honestly. They're going to rebuild it, all right? Verse 8, Hilkiah the priest said to Shaphan the secretary, I have found the book of the law in the house of the Lord. And Hilkiah gave the book to Shaphan, and he read it. By the way, does anybody know what the book of the law is? It's the Torah. It's the first five books, what we know is the first five books of the Bible, all right? Do you remember a big section that we've been studying a lot in our study of Ezekiel? Remember in Leviticus? That whole section that talked in chapters 18 through 26 about if you obey me, here's what I'm going to do to bless you. And if you don't obey me, here are the consequences. Uh, it's pretty obvious that you're going to see that they got to that part. And Shaphan, after reading it, the secretary came to the king and reported to the king, your servants have emptied out the money that was found in the house and have delivered it into the hand of the workmen who have the oversight of the house of the Lord. Then Shaphan, the secretary, told the king, Hilkiah, the priest, has given me a book. And Shaphan read it before the king. When the king heard the words of the book of the law, he tore his clothes. And the king commanded Hilkiah the priest and Hickam the son of Shaphan and Ekbor the son of Micaiah and Shaphan the secretary and Isaiah the king's servant saying, Go inquire of the Lord for me and for the people and for all Judah concerning the words of this book that has been found. For great is the wrath of the Lord that is kindled against us, because our fathers have not obeyed the words of this book to do according to all that is written concerning us. So Hilkiah the priest and Hickam and Ekbor and Shaphan and Isaiah went to Huldah the prophetess, the wife of Shalom, the son of Tikva, the son of Harhas, keeper of the wardrobe. Now she lived in Jerusalem in the second quarter. And they talked with her. And she said to them, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, tell the man who sent you to me, thus says the Lord, behold, I will bring disaster upon this place, meaning the temple, and upon the, its inhabitants and all the words of the book that the king of Judah has read, because they have forsaken me and have made offerings to other gods that they might provoke me to anger with all the work of their hands. Therefore, my wrath will be kindled against this place and it will not be quenched. But to the king of Judah, this is Josiah, who sent you to inquire of the Lord, thus you shall say to him, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, regarding the words that you have heard, because your heart was penitent and you have humbled yourself before the Lord, when you heard how I spoke against this place and against its inhabitants, that they should become a desolation and a curse, and you have torn your clothes and wept before me, I also have heard you, declares the Lord. Therefore, behold, I will gather you to your fathers, and you shall be gathered to your grave in peace." And your eyes shall not see all the disaster that I will bring upon this place. And they brought back word to the king. So the prophetess says, here's what God's saying. All this stuff that he said in the law that he was going to do because of your sin. And if you did these things, I'll multiply it times seven. Remember all that? God's still going to do it. He can't be God and say, I'm going to do it and not do it. But tell the king that because he repented, because he responded in the way he did, I'm going to spare him. He won't see it in his lifetime. Go to chapter 23. Then the king sent, and all the elders of Judah and Jerusalem were gathered to him. And the king went up to the house of the Lord, and with him all the men of Judah and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem and the priests and the prophets and all the people, both small and great. 
And he read in their hearing all the words of the book of the covenant that had been found in the house of the Lord. And the king stood by the pillar and made a covenant before the Lord to walk after the Lord and to keep his commandments and his testimonies and his statutes with all his heart and all his soul. To perform the words of this covenant that were written in this book and all the people joined in the covenant. And the king commanded Hilkiah the high priest and the priests of the second order and the keepers of the threshold to bring out of the temple of the Lord all the vessels made for Baal, for Asherah, and for all the hosts of heaven. You see where they're bringing it out of? They're bringing out of the temple all this idol worship stuff. The Baal, stuff made for Baal, for Asherah, and the host of heaven. He burned them outside Jerusalem in the fields of the Kidron and carried their ashes to Bethel. Remember, remember Bethel? We'll be back there in just a bit. And he deposed the priest whom the kings of Judah had ordained to make offerings in the high places at the cities of Judah and around Jerusalem, and those who also who burned incense to Baal, to the sun and to the moon and to the constellations and all the hosts of the heavens. And he brought out the Asherah from the house of the Lord outside Jerusalem to the brook Kidron, and he burned it at the brook Kidron, and he beat it to dust and cast the dust of it upon the graves of the common people. And he broke down the houses of the male cult prostitutes who were in the house of the Lord. We'll deal with that a whole lot more when we get to chapter 8, where the women were wove hangings for the Asherah. And he brought all the priests out of the cities of Judah and defiled the high places where the priests had made offerings from Geba to Beersheba. And he broke down the high places of the gates that were at the entrance of the gate of Joshua, the governor of the city, which were on one's left and at the gate of the city. However, the priests of the high places did not come up to the altar of the Lord in Jerusalem, but they ate unleavened bread among their brothers. And he defiled Topeth, which is in the valley of the son of Hinnom, and that no one might burn his son or his daughter as an offering to Molech. And he removed the horses that the kings of Judah had dedicated to the son at the entrance to the house of the Lord by the chamber of Nathan Melech, the chamberlain, which is, was the, in the precincts. And he burned the chariots of the son with fire and the altars on the roof of the upper chamber of Ahaz, which the kings of Judah had made, and the altars that Manasseh had made in the two courts of the house of the Lord. He pulled down and broke in pieces, and he cast the dust of them into the brook Kidron. And the king defiled the high places that were east of Jerusalem to the south of the Mount of corruption, which Solomon, the king of Israel, had built for Ashtoreth, the abominations of the Sidonians, and for Chemosh, the abomination of Moab, and for Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites. And he broke in pieces the pillars and cut down the ashram and filled their places with the bones of men. Solomon even had, had those places built. Remember, he had all those wives, and because of them, he started worshiping foreign gods at the end of his life. Moreover, the altar at Bethel, remember chapter 12, chapter 13, chapter 12 and 13 of 1 Kings? Moreover, the altar at Bethel, the high place erected by Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who made Israel to sin, that altar with the high place he pulled down and burned, reducing it to dust. He also burned the Asherah. By the way, didn't the altar already fall apart when the prophet made his prophecy? They rebuilt it. So he burns it, he pulls it down, and he burns it, reducing it to dust. He also burned the Asherah, and as Josiah turned, he saw the tombs there on the mountain. And he, sent, and he took the bones out of the tombs, and he burned them on the altar and defiled it, according to the word of the Lord that the man of God proclaimed, who had predicted these things. Then he said, what is that monument that I see? And the men of the city told him, it's the tomb of the man of God who came from Judah and predicted these things that you've just done against the altar at Bethel. He didn't even know he was fulfilling the prophecy. And he said, well, let him be. Let no man move his bones. So they let his bones alone with the bones of the prophet who came out of Samaria. And Josiah removed all the shrines also of the high places that were in the cities of Samaria, which kings of Israel had made, provoking the Lord to anger. He did to them according to all that he had done at Bethel. And he sacrificed all the priests of the high places who were there on the altars, and he burned human bones on them. Then he returned to Jerusalem. Over 300 years after the prophecy that had been told, God had said, there's going to be a king by the name of Josiah, and he's going to burn all your bones, these priests, on this altar. And all he destroyed all of them. Now, it wasn't until the 18th year of his reign that they find the book of the law. He repents and all this stuff, and he destroys all the high places. Well, let me ask you a question. Why then is Ezekiel being told by God 
to prophesy against the high places that they're about to be destroyed. I thought they were all just destroyed. We just read about it. Not only did they rebuild them, I don't know how many of you know this, but I'm going to give you a little bit of timeline history here. Got a notepad? You want to write this down? Double check me? You can. Josiah was the king from 640 B.C. to 609 B.C. He reigned 31 years, remember? But it's not until the 18th year that he starts to destroy all the, all the altars. All right? The king that came after Josiah was a king named Jehoahaz. Jehoahaz didn't even last a year. His kingship happened during the year 609. After Jehoahaz, Jehoahaz came Jehoiakim. Jehoiakim was the king from 609 to 597 B.C. After Jehoiakim was Jehoiachin. And Jehoiachin's kingship only lasted three months. And if you remember at the very beginning of our study of Ezekiel, he was the king at the time when the Babylonians came in their second wave and took 10,000 captives to Babylon. And Ezekiel and his wife were a part of that 10,000 during the reign of Jehoiachin. But he had only reigned three months. After Jehoiachin was only one more king in Israel, his name was Zedekiah, and he was just a puppet king for Babylon until 586 when they were totally destroyed in the siege of Jerusalem that we've been studying that God's saying is about to come. I want you math people to help me out here. 640 to 586. Anybody have any idea how many years that is? 586 is when the final destruction of Jerusalem happened. 54 years. Oh, but remember, Josiah doesn't even start what he, the destroying until 18 years later. So 54 minus 18, 36 years. It's over, just a little over 36 years later that Ezekiel's being told, prophesy against the altars. You ready for the real shocker? Go back to Ezekiel and turn to chapter 8. We're just going to read just a little bit in chapter 8. Like I say, when we get to chapter 8 in a couple of weeks, we will really break this down. There's a lot in chapter 8. Remember that name, Shaphan? Remember the secretary that read the book of the law? You're going to see his name come up again. Ezekiel chapter 8, verse 1. In the sixth year, in the sixth month, on the fifth day of the month, as I sat in my house with the elders of Judah sitting before me, the hand of the Lord God fell upon me there. Then I looked, and behold, a form that had the appearance of a man. Below what appeared to be his waist was fire, and above his waist was something like the appearance of brightness like gleaming metal. He put out the form of a hand and took me by the lock of my head, and the Spirit lifted me up between earth and heaven and brought me in visions of God to Jerusalem, to the entrance of the gateway of the inner court that faces north. Where was the seat of the image of jealousy, which provokes to jealousy? And behold, the glory, of the glory of God of Israel was there, like the vision that I saw in the valley. Then he said to me, Son of man, lift up your eyes now toward the north. So I lifted up my eyes toward the north. And behold, north of the altar gate in the entrance was this image of jealousy. And he said to me, Son of man, do you see what they're doing? The great abominations that the house of Israel are committing here to drive me far from my sanctuary. He's entering into the temple now. All right, they're at, the, at the altar placed there at the temple. And you see what they're doing here in the temple, God says? But you'll see greater abominations. And he brought me to the entrance of the court. And when I looked, behold, there was a hole in the wall. And then he said to me, son of man, dig in the wall. So I dug in the wall and behold, there was an entrance. And he said to me, go in and see the vile abominations that they're committing here. So I went in and saw and there engraved on the wall all around. This is in the temple was every form of creeping things and loathsome beasts. And all the idols of the house of Israel. This is in the temple of God. And before them stood 70 men of the elders of the house of Israel with Jezaniah, the son of who? Shaphan standing among them. Each had a censer in his hand and the smoke of the cloud of incense went up. Then he said to me, son of man, have you seen what the elders of the Israel are doing in the dark? Each one in his room of pictures. For they say, the Lord does not see us. The Lord has forsaken the land. Then he says, you're going to see greater abominations. I'm not going to go any further because we're going to cover that when we get to chapter 8. But I just wanted to show you something here. It's actually been less than 36 years because we did the math. 36 years from the 18th year of King Josiah till 586 when the destruction of Jerusalem happened is 36 years. 
Ezekiel's told to prophesy before the final judgment comes in 586. So it's actually less than 36 years later. Ezekiel's taken in vision of God back to Jerusalem, and he's able to see what God sees is actually going on in the temple. And all that stuff that was going on during the time of Josiah, less than 36 years prior, that he had destroyed and pulled out of the temple, was going right back on. And even though Shaphan read the law and it changed him and he read it to the king and it changed him. Shaphan's son was leading the 70 elders and all that worship in the temple that was idolatrous. I say this for a reason. And I want you to hear me closely. I believe we may, and I use the word may, have received some mercy of God here in the United States with how the election has gone. But don't think for a second that everything's going to be okay now. We need to understand what the scriptures teach, folks. Remember what God said to the nation of Israel when they went to hold of the prophetess? He said, everything that I said I would do, I'm going to do. Josiah, because you responded appropriately, you're not going to experience it in your lifetime. But it's still going to happen. And if we're faithful to the scriptures, the Bible tells us that wide is the path that goes to destruction. Many go that way. And narrow is the road that leads to eternal life. Listen closely. And few there be that find it. The Bible says that as things continue on, godlessness and wickedness will increase more and more and more. The Bible actually says that when Jesus comes, he says, will he even find faith on the earth? And on top of that, the Bible also tells us that in the very end, every single nation on the earth, if we even exist at the time, that includes us, will be against Israel. So I don't want anybody thinking, hey, we're all good now. We get the guy in office we want. You put confidence in man. Let me tell you about man. The Bible says the heart is deceitful beyond all things and beyond cure. And apart from God doing a work in each of us, we'd be the same way. And listen closely. We may, and I use that word again, may experience some mercy of God for a season. I can't even promise you that he said that we're going to receive mercy. Everything that God says in his word that is coming is going to happen. I want us to kill, still, being salt, still be salt and light, though. Thank God for Josiah. Thank God for the fact that he tore down the altars and did what he did. It slowed it for a while, didn't he? By the way, isn't that what salt's supposed to do? It's supposed to slow the decay. Salt doesn't change it. So stop listening to the preachers that talk about this great revival that's going to break out over the whole globe and how we're going to change the world for Christ. If you're going to be faithful to the scriptures, Jesus said, if they hated me, they're going to hate you. If they didn't listen to me, they're not going to listen to you. But I'm going to build my church. And the gates of hell won't stop it. But we've got to keep in mind what's coming. The judgment's still coming. And we, in this day that God's put us, need to be salt and light and continue to preach and live the truth. Now, I say that for a reason. Were the other nations around Israel worshiping on high places? Were they committing idolatry by worshiping gods that weren't gods? Well, how come God's not dealing with them? Oh, he will. But the Bible teaches that he deals with his people first. Write this down, look at it later on. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 17. Says that it's time for judgment to begin with the household of faith. I think one of the reasons that the church has kind of missed it over the last so many years is because we've been caught up too much with dealing with the wickedness of the world and the wickedness of the United States and not allowed God to deal with us. I mean, Josiah tore his clothes. When Isaiah saw God, he said, woe is me. When people actually got into the presence of God, they realized their sin. And I want to challenge you. Go back to Ezekiel chapter 6. 
Four times, I don't know if you caught it as I read it to you, four times in this one chapter, God said something over and over. Oh, and by the way, after I read these four times to you, let me just tell you, he actually says it not only these four times in this chapter, he also says it 60 other times in this whole book of Ezekiel. You're going to see it in verse 7. And you shall know that I am the Lord. Look at verse 10. And they shall know that I am the Lord. I have not said in vain that I would do this evil to them. Look at verse 13. And you shall know that I am the Lord when the slain lay among them. And look at verse um, 14. Then they will know that I am the Lord. God says, when I do everything that I'm saying through you, Ezekiel, that I'm going to do, then they're going to know I'm in charge. Then they're going to know that I'm God. Go to Jeremiah chapter uh, um, 16. Go to Jeremiah 16 real quick. Look at verse 21. Jeremiah 16, verse 21, God says, Therefore, behold, I will make them know this once. I will make them know my power and my might, and they shall know that my name is the Lord. Does anybody know what the word Lord means? In the Greek, it's kurios. It means an owner of a possession or master. In other words, he gets to call the shots. Folks, God, and I could show you more than just the 64 times in Ezekiel. All throughout the scriptures, I just showed you one in Jeremiah. There's a bunch in Leviticus. All through the scriptures, God says that he is pointing to a day. Well, Philippians chapter 2 puts it this way. That at the name of Jesus, every knee is going to bow. And every tongue is going to confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of the Father. Listen, the Bible says in that passage, people in heaven, people on the earth, and even those under the earth. I've heard too many people say, well, I don't care. I don't mind going to hell. That's where all my friends are going to be, and we're going to have a party. <laughs> Folks, listen closely. Satan is not ruling in hell. He dreads it himself. He's going there as a prisoner just like everybody else. He's going to be tormented forever and ever, just like everybody else. And the Bible says in Philippians chapter 2 that every knee is going to bow and every tongue is going to confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of the Father. And that means the people in hell will not be worshiping or, I mean, sorry, they won't be celebrating. They will be acknowledging that Jesus is God. I want to say something to you. As I did this study, God began to speak to Jim Johnson. He said, Jim... I'm purifying my people. Not only did I do it then, not only will I do it at the very end of the time, but I'm doing it now amongst my bride. If I ask you to quote Romans chapter 8, verse 28, many of you could probably do it because we know that all things work together for good for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. But if I ask you to quote verse 29, could you? For those he foreknew, he predestined to conform them into the image of of Jesus Christ. You've been predestined to be conformed into his image. I'm going to remind you of something. You've sung it, I'm sure, many times in church, but I want you to hear what you say. He is Lord. Go to Psalm 32. David writes this and he says, blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. David then says, for when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. Has anybody here ever been through conviction of the Holy Spirit where he's really trying to work on you about something and you've been resisting him? You actually, the longer you stay without repentance, move into a state where it's almost like a depression. Just 
food doesn't even taste good. You just, you just don't even feel like getting up. It's the Spirit of God working heavy on you as He's trying to get you to acknowledge that He is Lord. But then David says, I acknowledge my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I'll confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgive the iniquity of my sin. You forgave the iniquity of my sin. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer a prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters they shall not reach him. For you are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. And God says in verse 8, I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. But don't be like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. Did you hear what he says? He says, I'm going to lead you and guide you. I'm the Lord. I've got the reins. Don't make me use the bit. When my kids were little, and we've got three awesome kids, and they were pretty obedient as far as kids go, but they're still kids. And there'd be times they'd stick their little feet in the ground, and they were going to win this battle between mom and dad. And I remember his big old dad, a lot of times I'd have to get right up to him and say, I'm bigger than you and I'm going to win. Just think how much more that God has at his disposal. Everyone is going to acknowledge that he's Lord. Don't wait. Whatever that means for you, do it. Whatever it is, he's telling you. That it's not my job to tell you, well, if you're going to acknowledge him as Lord, you need to do No, no, no. Romans chapter four, 14, verse 4 says this. Who are you to judge the servant of another? To his own master he stands or falls, and the Lord is able to make him stand. Folks, listen closely. I want to close with James chapter 4. Listen to James chapter 4. Written to the church. Written to believers See, we can look at this study of Ezekiel and look at all that happened to Israel and all that Israel was doing and all that's going to be coming in the future and miss the point. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? I don't know about you, but I still struggle with that, don't you? My passions are at war. You desire and you don't have, so you murder. Well, I don't murder. Well... What did Jesus say? You hate. Same thing. You covet and can't obtain, so you fight and quarrel. Sounds like business meeting. You don't have because you don't ask, and you ask and don't receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people. Isn't that the same description that God was using against Israel? You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God? Or do you just suppose it's to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? Oh, but there's good news. Remember how David said, when I was in my sin, your hand was heavy upon me and it was hard, but then I confessed. He gives grace. He gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he'll flee from you. Draw near to God, and he'll draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Don't be lax or flippant with God's holiness or God's glory, or his ability to make you know that he's God. He's bigger than you, and he's going to win. So in the days that we have left, we know the scripture says there's a judgment coming on the whole world, and everything he said he's going to do, he's going to do. We may experience the mercy of God. We may not see it. But let me tell you this much. If we're still here, He's working on us right now. And when he's done, he'll take us, and then he'll do with the world what he's got planned for the world. So let's take our eyes off of the world and all that they need to do to get things right and let the Lord show us individually what that means to let him be Lord.
I'll close with this. Years ago, Vance Havner, wonderful old preacher, said he got tired of giving invitations at the end of church because there was an invitation for people that wanted to be saved or an invitation for people that need to be baptized or an invitation for people that want to come join the church or an invitation that everybody wants to be rededicated. He said there were so many different invitations. By the time he was done giving invitations, everybody was confused and nobody knew what they are coming forward for. So he stopped doing that and he said, I only give one invitation now. And he said, at the end of the service, I just offer to anybody that wants to make Jesus Lord or to acknowledge Jesus is Lord. Come on. He said, because if he's telling you you need to be saved, you'll come forward because he's Lord. If he's telling you you need to be baptized, you'll come forward because he's Lord. If he's telling you to join with that local congregation, you'll go forward because he's Lord. If he's telling you to drop something and go and give it to him at the altar, you'll do it because he's Lord. And my prayer for us all is that we will acknowledge Jesus as Lord. He's got his schedule. He's got his time. He's going to deal with the world. Right now, he's dealing with us. Let him. I'll see you all in a couple weeks. Thanks for coming.